it's almost like they're saying, you know, I dare you <laughs> to not get what we know. Ladies and gentlemen, we know of America! And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com, with another edition of BOA Audio Season 5. Just one in-house note this week for you at the beginning of the program. We have launched the beta version of BOA 2.0. You can find that at Banal of America. Go to the home page and you'll see a big blue BOA 2.0 button in the menu bar on the left-hand side of the screen. That'll take you to BOA 2.0 beta. We want your feedback on the upcoming redesign of the website. We want to know what you like, what you dislike. Definitely want to check out the BOA Audio Archive on BOA 2.0 because that has been radically redesigned. And a whole bunch of other pages have gotten a really cool graphic facelift courtesy of our new webmaster, Jeremy Boston. So go over to BOA 2.0, check it out, and send us your feedback. We definitely want to hear your thoughts on the new look for Been All of America. Now that we've taken care of that in-house note, let's move on to this week's edition of BOA Audio. It is totally off the beaten path of what we normally discuss here on the program. We're going to be exploring the world of arcane science in the unexpected locale of Disneyland with our guest Walter Bosley. He's the author of Latitude 33, Key to the Kingdom. Walter's going to detail his research into ley lines, for lack of a better term. They're not necessarily the classic ley lines that many people have come to know and loathe. They're sort of energy lines. We're using ley lines as the catch-all term. And he's going to explain how the Magic Kingdom sits atop an intersection of three such lines. And then we're going to go even deeper down the rabbit hole as Walter will reveal the amazing background behind Disneyland's construction and how it was all engineered by a former SRI employee who may have had access to such arcane scientific knowledge. Really mind-blowing stuff there. Along the way, we're going to get into a whole bunch of little weird esoteric tidbits with regards to Disneyland, including mysterious deaths at the Magic Kingdom, ghost sightings in Disneyland, the extinction of the World's Fair. Ever wonder what happened to the World's Fair? We're going to talk about that as well. And on top of all that, we're going to find out about the stunning information imparted to him by his father about Roswell and alien races. Walter's dad was a pretty high-ranking guy in the Air Force and had a lot of access to some tremendous information that he told Walter later on in his life. And Walter shares with us here at the end of the program a whole different thought-provoking avenue that we discuss at the end of the show. And then we're going to delve a little bit into Walter's past as an AFOSI agent. A lot of people have heard of the AFOSI. Thanks to Rick Doty, Walter's going to try and set the record straight a little bit about what the AFOSI is all about. So there's a lot of food for thought here in this week's edition of the program. I'm sure you're going to dig it because I enjoyed it quite a bit. Before we dive into the interview, allow me to give you a little bit of background on Walter Bosley. Walter Bosley is a former AFOSI special agent and FBI counterintelligence specialist who now works as a private investigator and counterespionage consultant. 
In 2002, he founded the Lost Continent Library, publisher of the Wonder Worlds trilogy, and his book Latitude 33, Key to the Kingdom, is sold exclusively at kevinsmithshow.com. And now, without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on November 14, 2009. Walter Bosley talking about arcane science and Disneyland on BOA Audio Season 5. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Banal of America Audio. We have a very intriguing guest here for us this week, a very cool guy. I had a chance to read his book last night, and I was really blown away by the material that he's uncovered. I'm admittedly kind of skeptical about some of the stuff, but we're going to explore all that here because we've never even had a discussion on the program about ley lines, which is what we're going to be talking about here this week, and specifically some of the material that he's uncovered, which suggests that there are ley lines crossing paths underneath Disneyland, and that is why a lot of weird stuff's happened in Disneyland in the past. It's an amazing story with a lot of information regarding the creation of Disneyland that I'd never even heard of before that uh, really blew me away, and I was just stunned by some of the stuff that he's uncovered in his book, Latitude 33, Key to the Kingdom. It is really a very cool book, and he is a frequent uh, co-host, I guess you could say, on Radio Mysterioso with our good friend Greg Bishop. Greg, of course, holds the record for most appearances ever on BOA Audio, so he's a mutual friend of uh, Greg Bishop, and that's always a good thing because any friend of Greg Bishop is a friend of mine. He has had a remarkable career prior to his investigation into the esoteric. We'll be talking about that towards the end of our interview, but for now we're going to be discussing Latitude 33, Key to the Kingdom, Ley Lines, Disneyland, and really what might be going on around the world with regards to these strange energy lines that are a fixture of esoterica. He is Walter Bosley. Walter, welcome to BOA Audio. Great to have you here on the program. Thanks, Tim. I really appreciate being here. I guess let's start out, you know, with the bio, the background. Who is Walter Bosley, and how did you get interested in the esoteric in the first place? Oh, wow. Well, that goes way back to uh, childhood. I grew up with um, a dad who had been in the Air Force and was uh, very keenly interested in the whole subject of UFOs. Um, uh, that in itself is a story that um, I've told in a couple of places uh, one of which, uh, Fate Magazine. I wrote an article about the things my father told me about Roswell before Roswell was kind of on the, the public radar. Um, and, and UFOs, an interest in UFOs as a child, um, the more I looked into it, you know, as a teenager and such, uh, it naturally led to an awareness of other strange phenomena associated with UFOs. And then on top of that, some personal experiences I have had with uh, the high strangeness of this world over the years, and and it just kind of one thing led to another. Sounds good. Sounds good. Now, let's sort of find out what drew you to this research into ley lines, because now, as I said, I wouldn't even really call myself uh, skeptical about ley lines. I'll be honest. I'm I'm more ignorant to ley lines. Uh, You know, I've only heard heard of them in other places and, and referred to on the peripheral. I've never really talked to anyone who's done a serious investigation into ley lines. How did you even get interested in that aspect of esoterica, which obviously led to this investigation into Disneyland? Well, that's, that is actually, uh, I think, a very interesting story. Um, first of all, um, I'm going to be uh, 
providing the definition of ley lines as I and some others use them, but um, as we many of us know, um, traditionally a ley line is a straight alignment of uh, megalithic, um, you know, ancient kind of mystery sites upon which um, our known civilizations through history have also built atop um, certain spots, and there they've often been associated with, you know, interesting and strange phenomena. And um, uh, gosh, way back, it's uh, over 30 years ago now, Jacques Vallée and his challenge uh, to science, he was one of the first ones to write about um, UFO routes um, were noticed to be, um, they, they coincided. The, the, in other words, the, the areas that people were seeing UFOs and the directions which they'd be following seemed to coincide with these um, ancient megalithic uh, alignment sites, these, these traditional ley lines. And he found that very interesting. Uh, he was one of the first to say, gosh, you know, or is there some connection to what, what these ley lines are and, and what the UFOs do and, and what they are? And um, I had heard about that in the 80s. I, unfortunately, I can't remember the names of the, the two researchers, but they kind of took uh, Valet's uh, comments and they started identifying, you know, where ley lines intersected. And they noticed that there was um, a much higher amount of uh, UFO reports coincidentally, where these traditional ley lines intersected. Then they took it one step further, and they noticed that also, as well as UFOs, there were many more reportings of uh, reports of hauntings and um, devil at the crossroads, strange crypto creatures, that kind of thing, all sorts of strange things, and they all seemed to um, accumulate around the intersections of these ley lines. And I, I, I've found that fascinating then, and I, for years I continued to find it um, very, very interesting. And that led to my research in, you know, this whole idea of um, hidden energy, you know, uh, flowing through these ley lines or around the planet. Mm -hmm. And uh, I you know, learned about the grid pattern that is talked about and written about uh, a lot, that there's a grid pattern, you know, over the planet, um, straight lines, north-south, and then, of course, you know, the uh, east-west running lines. Mm -hmm. And, um, again, um, I was discovering that, you know, other researchers had found that, wow, you know, coincidentally, this weird stuff um, seemed to be found where this grid pattern, these lines and their intersections could be found. So I, I, I started studying um, UFO cases um, that were out there from that point of view. And my interest, really, I realized that UFOs were just part of something bigger. And what was the, the, the bigger picture had everything to do with these so-called ley lines. And I discovered that there were some other researchers who had really started pinpointing that it was more than just these uh, alignments across Europe and such that were known, and um, there was a lot more to, you know, what was flowing through this grid pattern on the planet. Yeah, exactly. Now, I guess the question I have is who figured out where these ley lines go? Because, like, when I was looking in the book and, and the ones that cross under Disneyland, like, they're not exactly straight lines. They're kind of curving around and, and they're, you know, it's like, where did they, anyone, how they even come up with these lines in the first place? Exactly. And that's, um, uh, um, 
and that's what I meant by um, we have to define when we're talking about the ley lines. What, what I was just describing was the interesting phenomena associated with these straight lines. And um, it goes back as far as uh, Nikola Tesla, of course, um, was a, aware of this uh, grid pattern that went around the planet. Um, men like John Warrell Keeley uh, were aware of it. Um, other researchers after Tesla, Schauberger and, and such, uh, certainly um, knew about it. But uh, it is believed that the ancients were aware of this. Um, but uh, here's the interesting thing. You bring up these curvy linear lines, and that's the key. What we have is a grid pattern of, uh, of energy that is it's electromagnetic in nature. It uh, has to do with um, it affects gravity or causes gravity as we know it on the planet. And this grid pattern is all around and across the globe, north to south, east west, the whole circumference of the planet. Now, as the land masses, as they move, because as we know, the continents move and the seas move, of course, as the land masses move through the grid pattern that has this electromagnetic energy running through it, they, they sort of, they are affected by the movement through the grid, especially the intersections of these straight line, you know, the straight lines uh, grid pattern where these lines intersect. They're affected so that they kind of drag some of the energy off of the main grid pattern lines and at the same time that they're dragging it, this energy is, in many ways, forming the land patterns themselves. And as the land patterns are formed and they, they move through this grid pattern, the energy that they drag with them, this are the curvy linear lays of energy that move through the landforms. Okay. And the energy flowing through them now, this is something I didn't understand when I did the Disneyland book, but in my research since the Disneyland book, I have come to um, embrace that the energy flowing through these curvy linear lines um, is telluric currents. Now, if you're familiar with telluric currents, this is an electric current, extremely low frequency, ELF, that moves underground and through the seas, through the oceans. And it's what flows through these curvy linear lines that spiral out and cover entire land masses. Um, I'm looking at right now a map that was made for me, handmade, by um, my geomorphologist, as it were, author Sesheri, mm -hmm. um, of the entire United States and the one of Southern California to its left, which I'll be referring to as we go on further. Okay, now the grid... Over the U, over the world, that's is that in keeping with the longitude and latitude and lines, or is it completely all like completely different from that? It it's very very similar to that. In fact, um, I personally um, suspect that uh, it played a role in the origin of uh, that whole system of longitude and, and latitude, and um, it. It, 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 and it looks like that. If you were to see this visually, it would look like you're looking at that classic image of a globe in graphic arts yeah. that has the lateral and longitudinal lines going across it. That's what this is like. It's just tilted a bit. Okay, so what we're looking at is almost two different sorts of lines here. The ley lines, which are curvy and sort of go around uh, on the world, and then there's also the grid 
of, for lack of a better term, a longitude and latitudinal ley line situation. Yes, and again, slightly, slightly uh, angled, curved, um, you know, so many degrees. But yes, yes, but remember, they work together. Okay, all right, all right. And so what's interesting about the situation at Disneyland is actually it's kind of like a combination of the two because you've got the ley lines which cross under Disneyland, and then it's also on the 33-degree latitude, which as obviously where you got the title of the book and as many people know, is the site of a whole bunch of different weird esoteric uh, landmarks, if you will, on the 33-degree um, latitude line. Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. Um, the, the Disneyland sets on an intersection of three of the curvy linear lines that uh, spiral through Southern California. And at the same time, as you said, it's latitudinally in a zone. Um, I, the zone is really, it has been identified by other researchers as being between 30 and 40 degrees latitude north. Within 30 to 40, there's this band that if you follow this around the Earth, you find all sorts of interesting things like the, the Giza Pyramid complex and, and many other ancient sites. But specifically at 33 degrees in the United States, you find Disneyland, you find Roswell and you find Dallas where the very mysterious JFK assassination took place as we all know it's uh, enough to make one think that there's something going on there now how did you even figure out that these lines crossed under Disneyland because I never even would have thought to look there although I know you're like in the area so it's like a landmark to you so I can imagine that it might be something like that that would come up but you know how did you even stumble upon this information that these lines crossed under Disneyland? Well, it all goes back to the, um, the incident that I talk about in the book with the old man named Alfred. Um, and as I, as I say in the book, and you can read it in there, the details are in there. Um, I, way back in 1981, a high school kid, and I have um, what appears to be a mundane experience with an old gentleman about 70 years old and you know, and that I kind of felt compelled to do a nice thing for, and, you know, it just, that would seem to be the end of it. Um, only the experience oddly stayed with me for years, and uh, it happened in the midst of some of the most extraordinary, um, strange experiences I was having in my life at that time, and um, it was at the beginning of a whole period of my life that just was you know, one interesting thing after another. So it, it always stayed with me, and we come all the way up to uh, 2006, and I'm sitting with Greg, um, sitting in with him on his show, and we're talking about things Masonic, and we wondered, well, gosh, how did Club 33, the um, fancy uh, private uh, club restaurant at Disneyland, get its name? You know, we're thinking something Masonic. So we pull up uh, Disneyland on the Internet, and Greg finds, hey, look at this. It's at uh, 33 degrees of latitude. And that kind of gave us the idea for, you know, looking into this. And I think that very night I made a call to Seshari, the author who's created my maps. And I'll say a word about just even having these maps later because it should be very interesting to folks interested in this stuff. But uh, he really quickly... Um, he, he does uh, geomorphology. He's been fooling around with it for about 25 years. He takes it seriously. And uh, he very quickly did an analysis. And within a couple of days, he contacted me and said, wow, 
um, I think you're on to something because I found an intersection of three curvilinear ley lines, for lack of a better term, uh, in Southern California, and guess what? It is smack dab where Disneyland is. And when we looked at a tighter map, and a closer map, we discovered that the intersection was actually in Fantasyland. And where it's located in Fantasyland, we found out, was directly beneath where the carousel used to sit before they redesigned Fantasyland in 1982. Now, when I had my experience with the old man, I first saw him when I was riding the carousel. And from there, we went, hmm, there may be something to this. And then when I started really looking into it, it just, the floodgates opened. Yeah, that's a good way of describing it, because once you get into it in the book, it's just like unreal the strangeness of uh, the Disneyland connection here. Now, how extensive was, because uh, I know you list him as a co-author, how extensive was Greg's involvement in uh, the book? Because I haven't really ever heard him talk about it or anything like that. I was surprised to see him on the book. It, um, he and I have uh, uh, privately you know, talked about it a lot, and he gave me some uh, really great um, suggestions on the, on the research. And, um, you know, he, he kind of, you know, had his, his hand in, uh, you know, really giving me some, some excellent uh, directions to go in order to keep the research, you know, both down to earth, but, but also, you know, look at it in ways that uh, I might not have without um, his input. And, um, you know, so he's pretty much all, uh, kind of like a, uh, almost like a, uh, a writer mentor, because this was the first nonfiction book I had ever attempted. Yeah. And um, he was really um, an invaluable uh, resource in helping me with it. So so he, he's, he's kind of more of the, um, the mentor guide as, a, as an accomplished nonfiction author himself and researcher. Oh, yeah. I consider Greg a mentor to me as well, so I can definitely feel that. Now, one thing I wanted to ask you, completely out of left field here, I'm sort of like moving down through my notes as I had okay. read the book, so um, this may take us off course a little bit, but I figured if anyone would know, you would know for sure. You talk about how the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago was like hugely uh, popular and one in four Americans attended yeah. the World's Fair. How come mm -hmm. they stopped doing these World's Fairs? Because you hear so much about the classic World's Fair throughout you know, the 1900s and everything, but I can't even remember when they would have held the last one or why they don't do them anymore. I, I think, um, there, wow, there could be a variety of answers. One of them is, and, and they're all valid, um, one of them is I think maybe the Olympics in some ways took over um, the, um, the interest and appeal of the, you know, the, the, the big world's fair idea. Yeah. Um, I, I think that contributed to it. Another thing is uh, permanent world's fair, so to speak, Disneyland being the, the true first one, um, and, and, and more places like that um, probably, you know, took, absorbed some of the, um, you know, people that would be interested in going to a World's Fair, because um, that's, that's what was so extraordinary about this uh, 
It was the, the World's Columbian Exposition, but the 1893 Chicago World's Fair is its popular title. That's what was so extraordinary about this event, is that World's Fairs, so to speak, big fairs had been going on since history began, but um, there had been one in Paris that was very, very impressive, and the United States wanted to outdo that one, and they did with Chicago. And even then, it was the first of its kind, as I, as I talk about in the book. Um, and it, it was just amazing. But what it did was is it, it, it's you, the group that would be interested in the Olympics, the group that would be interested in going to the world's greatest amusement park, uh, the groups that you know, are always interested in going to like a technical fair or expo, this World's Fair in Chicago drew all of them, okay? It, it, it drew all of those groups to this one event. And, um, you know, when you think of one in four people in the nation traveled and most of them think how far they had to travel to, to go to this thing. That, that's pretty amazing. Um, it, was, it was quite astounding. The implications of it, I go into a little bit in the book, um, and uh, have you know, since then really began to see how it has affected our modern world, our modern society. It, it was a seminal event, to be sure. Yeah, it definitely sounds that way. And I believe that was when Tesla really rolled out a bunch of his really uh, groundbreaking inventions and, and, yeah. and the electrical uh, lights that he had designed and stuff that no one had ever seen before. So it was like, you know. It was the, the White City, they called it, which was the, the main fair plaisance, or what we'd call, I don't want to say midway, because the fair had a midway, and that's more carnivaly, but, you know, it, it's the main grand central thing. That was the first time that Americans... Um, especially in, in anybody from anywhere in the world, um, really got to see what a city would be like illuminated by electricity, how we are used to in the modern era. Now, think about that. 1893, we're talking, my gosh, you know, well over 100 years ago, Tesla did this, and uh, it was the first time people really saw what a nighttime in a city would look like for over 100 years to come. Absolutely, so that yeah. in itself was astounding to people. Oh yeah, I can imagine it would be like mind blowing to uh, to see that when you're used to living in the country or something like that with no electricity at all. So yeah, it uh, sounds amazing. I guess let's move back into Disneyland. And... Let, let me make okay. Uh, go ahead. Okay, let let me let to, since you're bringing it back to Disneyland, let's bring that back for the listener. The reason it's mentioned in the book and the reason we're going uh, back to Disneyland is. Walt Disney's father, Elias Disney, helped build the White City of the Chicago World's Fair in 1893. He was one of thousands of construction workers that worked on it. So Walt, who was born in 1901, grew up hearing about this amazing Chicago World's Fair. Exactly, yeah. And wanted to create his own sort of scene like that, which mm -hmm. eventually became Disneyland, correct? Yes. And then the World's Fairs continued, as you know, through the air, as you said, through a big portion of the 20th century and just seemed to wane off in uh, recent decades. Yeah, yeah. I can't even think of any, I can't even think of any really memorable ones that I can think of, honestly. Uh, None you know. in our lifetime. 1939 was the last famous one. Which is kind of disappointing in a way because it sounds like these were real cultural events, but, oh, you know, I can see how you mean about the Olympics sort of displacing them as as the world's fair, if you will, for lack of a better term. So then we move into back to Disneyland. Before we sort of get into the creation of Disneyland, I, I found it really 
interesting in the book that you do talk about some of the weird ghostly goings on at Disneyland. Um, just how strangely sort of like a public relation-y way that they handle it, how they, you know, they, they make them take the body off of Disneyland so they can declare that the person died at the hospital, not at Disneyland. It's like, all right, you're not fooling anyone, but okay, Disney. But it sounds like there are a lot of weird places in Disneyland where spiritual ghostly sort of happenings uh, have been reported. Yes, you have the uh, the, the the two boys who um, died trying to swim back across from uh, Tom Sawyer's Island. You have the little boy who, the story goes, was dying of a terminal disease, and his uh, mother took him to Disneyland, and he, interestingly, he didn't die at Disneyland, but interestingly, he allegedly haunts um, the Haunted Mansion, very appropriate spot. And then you have the strange things that have occurred related to employees that have died there, the mysterious uh, elevator uh, story. And I, I really, um, a, a really gold mine of information on this are the um, paranormal investigators, uh, Marlo James and her husband. They really educated me on uh, the, the strangeness, the ghost stories related to Disneyland. Now, have you ever heard of anything weird going on in the underground of Disneyland? Because a lot of people who are into the esoteric know about the underground city at Disneyland, but most people who go to Disneyland probably don't realize just how extensive and, you know, just insanely big and massive and, and, and detailed the underground part of Disneyland is where the employees and the staff and everything go. Interestingly, I didn't find anything that uh, delved in, into the underground. It was, it was, and, and we looked, um, I, I say we, I and, and, uh, and some of the people that helped me with the research, you know, um, looked because as the book gets into, as I'll get into, you know, the, the device that I believe was engineered into the park, um, it seems to me that there might be something under the uh, surface, the upper surface, um, where this is. And, uh, we could, we could find nothing. Now, when I say we could find nothing, we found nothing in open sources that, um, uh, talked about, you know, what we were looking for, um, or we found that there was no way to find this out. In other words, I, I don't want to use the word blocked, but it's just not open. It's closed off. Oh, yeah, they're very, yeah. They're very protective of their property. Absolutely, and especially that underground part. Sounds like one of the most, mm -hmm. it's as secret as any government base, I bet, in the country. <laughs> See, it seems like it. I mean, and there's some photos of it. You know, naturally, there's photos out there. You can go on the Internet and find photos of, you know, you see the employees, the cast members, they call them you know, going from one section to the other. And it looks like, you know, your standard hallway in a military base or a hospital, not a hospital, but in any kind of industrial building, you know, you might work in. Um, but, of course, you're going to see what they want you to see. You know, the only pictures they're going to get out are the very mundane ones. Um, that's not to say that I think there's some, uh, you know, Vernian crystal generator contraption underneath <laughs> where the carousel was. I, <laughs> I don't think it's that dramatic. I, I think, you know, if there's anything physical, it's probably camouflaged by your standard, you know, electrical box kind of thing, you know, that yeah. gray metal they make file cabinets out of, and it probably looks like nothing important. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, that actually, talking about saying uh, 
you know, you'll see what they want you to see. Now, when I was reading the book, I noticed that a lot of the pictures in the middle are renderings. Was that a result of any sort of like um, blockage from Disney that you couldn't put the pictures in of because of, they look like <laughs> they look like you had just taken the picture and had an artist recreate it. So it was like, I wonder why he didn't just put the picture in because they were too good to be anything but a copy of a picture. So it was like, I wonder if Disney put the kibosh on you putting the pictures in. Here's what's interesting. Disney has been eerily silent. And I've talked about this. I first talked about this on Coast to Coast AM on a Saturday night with Ian Punnett back in 06. Mm -hmm. Not a word from Disneyland. I've talked about this um, in other places publicly. The book has been out there. Not a word from uh, Disney. Um, those renderings were done, they were done by me, by the way, on uh, oh, nice. Photoshop. And I did them to precipitate any Disney blockage. I, you know, thought ahead. I thought, well, I will uh, take actual photos that I took and um, alter them slightly enough that, or photos that I found, you know, archival type stuff, and alter them slightly enough to keep myself out of legal trouble, hopefully. Yeah, you don't want to mess with Disney. They're they're <laughs> hardcore, so that's the last thing you need. Let's talk about the creation of Disneyland, because I was completely flabbergasted and blown away by the information that you have in the book, which is sounds like it's been scrubbed from history, uh, that the master engineer behind Disneyland was a man by the name of C.V. Wood, who actually was working at Stanford Research Institute, and, and Walt Disney went to Stanford Research Institute, which is infamous in the world of esoterica, to find someone to apparently help him pick the land for Disneyland and eventually develop it into Disneyland. I guess talk a little bit about C.V. Wood and his role in designing Disneyland, because this is, I think, really hugely critical to the whole story. Yeah, well, absolutely. And imagine my surprise when SRI popped up in the whole story. And, and I really, I credit my learning of this to um, the, the only guy at the time, the only person out there that has any kind of website or does anything Disney-related that talked about this man and talked about the SRI connection was Jim Hill, who has this great site called TheLaughingPlace.com. And, uh, wow, he's the only one, and, and uh, he stated in there that, you know, very oddly, this man who engineered Disneyland is almost persona non grata in any official Disney history. Now, I will say before I get into the rest of the question that since Jim Hill has written that and since my book has come out, there's a little bit more mention of C.V. Wood out there, both. Um, officially and unofficially. And so I, I find it very interesting that that has occurred since. But it, it, exactly, SRI, he, you know, it blew me away. Disney and his brother Roy are considering several locations throughout Southern California. Um, they were thinking of San Diego. They were thinking of the Inland Empire, Riverside, San Bernardino. They were, they were thinking of farther north in L.A. They were thinking of all these places, and Anaheim was one of them. Well, they went to SRI simply for um, some, some pretty uh, typical business input. You know, you know, do a little analysis, tell us what the population, you know, centers where they're going to grow and flow and, and, you know, how do other businesses and such, you know, blah, blah, blah. Just give us some, you know, standard uh, mundane business analysis. And the man that um, SRI assigned 
to the engineer that SRI assigned, because they also assigned another gentleman who was a numbers cruncher. But the engineer they assigned, he was so fascinated with the concept of, you know, Walt Disney's uh, park idea that he just fell in love with it. And this man was Cornelius Vanderbilt Wood, C.V. Wood. Um, he was born in 1921. He went into aerospace engineering and, and such and ended up at SRI. And he was the one who suggested to Walt and Roy Disney about the specific location in Anaheim. As a matter of fact, he kind of, the first time he pissed off Walt was when he kind of went forward in um, an acquisition step in this property. It was about 160 acres of citrus groves in, in Anaheim. And uh, he was so certain of this site, and Disney, you know, thought, okay, that's fine, you know, that, that sounds good to me. And that's how they selected the site. Now, from my research, I argue that when you look at SRI, as you mentioned, and a lot of your listeners are already familiar with SRI, but for those who are not, SRI is this incredible engineering think tank of way advanced technologies. These are the guys who came up with GPS, essentially. These are the guys who developed things like over-the-horizon radar. Um, now, how that connects to our whole Disneyland mystery is both GPS and things like radar, that involves the earth, the terrain, um, uh, magnetics, you know, electromagnetics. So if anybody was going to know about these, this grid pattern around the earth and take advantage of it and, and know about these curvilinear flows of this energy current or telluric current, um, SRI is going to be among them who knows know about this and uh, take advantage of it in their technologies. So as I argue in the book, SRI certainly had to know about this intersection of these ley lines. And, of course, uh, being an engineer and, and the kind of guy C.V. Wood was, he would have known about them. And we argue that, I argue that uh, that's exactly why he chose that spot, because he knew about that intersection. And he had some very interesting ideas of his own about what could be accomplished with Disneyland, built specifically on that spot. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Now, the idea that you put forward in the book was that Walt Disney was not aware of, of all this stuff we're talking about as far as the energy lines and the intersections and stuff like that, but C.V. Wood was. Do we know for sure that C.V. Wood was like the guy that put the carousel where it is? Okay, now we don't know for certain. if I, I would imagine at some point that C.V. Wood might have, you know, sat down with Walt and said, you know what, let's talk about this. Here's why I chose this, and here's this idea I have, And but we're not certain. He might have just kind of kept that part to himself. Um, I, I don't believe, uh, if Walt Disney was aware of it, he was probably aware of it and accepted it to the degree that here's this guy who's crazy smart, and it's telling me that it's going to enhance people's experience at the park. Well, you know, what the hell? I let him let him rock and roll. His enthusiasm is contagious. I, I like this man's dedication, and that's why Walt loved the guy initially. I think that C.V. Wood had these ideas, and within the framework, make no mistake, Disneyland was Walt Disney's vision. Walt knew what he wanted, you know, essentially where, but I think C.V. Wood took Walt's vision and laid it out physically on that piece of ground in a way that it would connect to this intersection and this grid system. So in that sense, 
Um, and in the practical sense, yes, I believe CV would engineer specifically, you know, uh, this building will be here, that building will be there, the castle will be here, and the carousel, you know, will be right here. Yeah. Um, you know, inches and feet, that kind of thing. So, so he following Walt Disney's instructions. Yes, CV would then made the uh, the uh, in, in, in engineering design terms made the specific final adjustments. How long did this uh, relationship last? Because obviously, it's talked about in the book that CV Wood and Walt had the falling out. Was that like soon? You know, soon after it opened, before it yeah, opened. I mean, when, how long did their friendship or working arrangement last? Only a couple of years. Okay. Um, it was in the late fifties that. Uh, Wood and Disney uh, parted ways, and uh, Walt got a little perturbed, according to most sources, at uh, C.V. Wood, you know, publicly calling himself the the man who built Disneyland, and um, he was, you know, he would he was getting to be known as the man who built Disneyland, and you know, I I think that old C.V. was, you know, maybe playing a little, you know, he technically was the man who built it. But, you know, when you're working like a man, with a man, for a man like Walt Disney, you know, you're, that's <laughs> yeah. a, a little bit too close to trying to take credit for, you know, something Walt came up with. And, and Walt didn't appreciate that, so they parted companies, and C.V. went off to see if he could apply these interesting theories to other amusement parks. Oh, yeah, we're going to get into that for sure, because there's one that's right next to my house. Ah. Yes, so I'm going to have to ask you about that. But um, okay. I guess the real nougat center here of the book is the carousel and its placement on the intersection of the ley lines and what you think is really going on uh, with the placement of the carousel on the ley lines. So I guess mm -hmm. let's talk about that and sort of get it across to people. You know, it's not just that these lines cross underneath Disneyland. It's also that they put the carousel on the intersection for the express purpose of, you know, creating some kind of effect. Yes. So that. talk a little bit about, you know, I guess uh, what what kind of effect they were trying to do there and, and you know, all that good stuff. Uh, absolutely. And I said it that way to kind of emphasize that's an understatement. Boy, oh, boy. Okay. Uh, the, uh, yes, the carousel being placed on the intersection was is the operative key element of the whole device. I see Disneyland, the entire park, as a device. Now, they built Disneyland, a lot of people don't know this, but they built Disneyland into a bowl. They dug out kind of a – Disneyland, if you look at it from an aerial view, is shaped kind of like a guitar pick. Mm -hmm. um, I, I like to say an upside-down triangle with the, the corners rounded. And a guitar pick is kind of what Disneyland looks like with the pick part, the pointy part, also rounded. And they, but the, what they did was they, they dug that shape out into a bowl. So when you're in Disneyland, you actually go down into a bowl, and there's a berm. They built up a berm around the perimeter of this, and that's where they placed the Disneyland Railroad. Now, in doing this, they created an artificial, and I emphasize that for a reason, an artificial gravity well. Um, I emphasize that because many times on uh, other places when I've talked about this, you always get the uh, the guy who calls in and he's, um, you know, a physicist. And it's like, okay, I am not a physicist, and this is an artificial gravity well, not a natural one. <laughs> 
so so by digging digging the hole in the ground like that, um, they created this artificial gravity well type situation, and and this intersection of ley lines is. Um, at, uh, I don't want to say the deepest point because, you know, naturally the bottom of the rivers of America, that's the deeper point. But it's, it's kind of everything kind of angles towards uh, that intersection. And uh, it's not far from the actual center point of Disneyland. But um, then after they did that, when they finished off the park by placing the carousel, the spinning object, directly above the intersection of these three curvy linear lines, what they do then, here's how the carousel works. The carousel, as it spins, it draws up the energy from those three lines, from that intersection. Now, you've got the energy, okay, this, this current running through all three of these lines. It is already intensified at the point of intersection, okay? Mm -hmm. it is that, that's intensity level one, we'll call it. Okay. So there you've got intense energy already. Now you've got this device, this rotating device that works to, it uses a kind of a torsion effect to pull up or suck up like a vacuum the, that already intensified energy from that intersection and the spinning motion of the carousel um, I, it probably intensifies it a little bit more, I don't know to what degree, um, but it draws it up, the, ro the, the spinning. Now at the same time, the spinning then distributes that energy drawn up in a spiraling pattern throughout the park. And that energy then flows throughout the park in that spiraling pattern, widening out, and it, when it comes to the berm, where the, the, you know, the perimeter of the park is, it comes to that berm and is, is stopped right there to gather so that it stays in the park. Okay? Mm -hmm. Now, what evidence do we have of this? Well, as I present in the book, and as I will argue to anybody, you know, Disneyland's called the happiest place on earth, the Magic Kingdom, and anybody who's gone there, um, it, you just, even when you're an adult, you go there and you're really able to, I remember when I was a kid, you're really able to kind of forget that you're in Anaheim, California, for however many, for that day that you're there. It, you, in other words, you drink the Kool-Aid. It just feels right. Yeah. You just feel good. You forget about time. You're, you're having a good time with your kid, you, you know, your significant other, whatever. You, you, you drink the Kool-Aid. Yes, you know it's all plaster and cast members and stuff like that, but, but you, you buy off on it for that day you're there. You, you just you forget the outside world. And um, I believe that that experience, because, you know, I, I've been to Knott's Berry Farm. I've been to amusement parks all over the country, and I've never had the same psycho-emotional experience that I've had at Disneyland, just a common day at Disneyland. None of the other ones are as convincing. They just don't feel the same. Disneyland has that special magic. I think that's evidence that, uh, you know, there's something psychotronic going on there. There's something that, you know, gently, subtly manipulates uh, your, your consciousness and how your emotional state's connected to it to enhance your experience of the park. And uh, you know, I'll emphasize that I believe that was the original goal, was just to simply enhance the success of this park. But that is basically how I believe the device worked. And I say in the past tense because I believe it has been disengaged. Absolutely, yeah. And this is the part that I was telling you about before we did the interview. As I was reading the book, I'm getting more and more excited because I make a trip out to California about once every couple of years. 
And I'm thinking to myself, that's it, I'm going to Disneyland next time. Then I get to the 1982 revelation, and I'm like, oh, shit. I am screwed. I completely missed the boat on this Disneyland thing. I'm not going to be able to enjoy this psychotronic effect. Hugely disappointed. I could, t- I could sense the disappointment in the book on your end by this change um, where they move the carousel and, as you say in the book, disengage the device, if you will. Do they ever really give any reason why they moved the carousel? Oh, it was just um, just it had to do with the redesign of Fantasyland. Um, for those of us who I don't know if you ever went to Disneyland before 1982, but um, you know Fantasyland looked one way, and after 1982, they, it, it's really cool. I mean, you know, I, and, and again, I want to say this: I love Disneyland. It's one of my favorite places, you know, ever on the face of this earth. And I've been or seen much of this at birth. Um, I, I love Disneyland, and I, I thought what they did um, as far as superficially at uh, Fantasyland was really cool. They gave it that European village kind of fantasy village, you know, storybook village look. Mm-hmm. And in order to just uh, fit things how they wanted it, they just, you know, the story is, you know, the official line is, is they shifted the carousel back several feet because they took out the uh, the teacup ride. It used to be right there behind the carousel with Dumbo behind the teacups, and they wanted to make Dumbo a little bit more flashier and center it more. So they moved the teacups over by Alice in Wonderland. They centered Dumbo more and made it, you know, a little bit flashier and bigger and uh, moved the uh, carousel back. And it just was their layout is what the official line is. Yeah. makes you wonder, I guess, not to get too conspiratorial, but it makes you just wonder if they if they purposely disengage the machine. And as I indicate in the book, um, I, I, I believe I do anyway, my, and if, if I don't as much as I think, my personal feeling is, yes, somebody knew, and yes, it was disengaged on purpose. But that doesn't mean that, like, you know, Michael Eisner knew it. That doesn't mean that uh, any of the business types or the, the guys building the place. It would only require one or two people who knew it who were in the positions of... Uh, you know, making the superficial, you know, the the facelift changes. It's terribly disappointing, though. I mean, it's just, I want to start, like, some kind of petition to get them to move the thing back. <laughs> I wish. Well, I'll tell you, imagine my disappointment, because knowing what I know now, my God, I, w- I would love for it to be in this that spot. Um, I've done carousel tests in other places where there are lines associated with uh, old carousels. And, and as I said, I'll allude to later, this research of Disneyland opened me up to I, I, there's all sorts of other strange things going on with uh, carousels and these lines. What's on the place now where the carousel used to be? That is something that um, is also it, it's I, the, the, I'm, I'm continuing to research that and it is very much a fascinating element of my research that I'm continuing to do that um, that, again, I talk about in the, in the other book, but um, what is there now is the sword in the stone uh, from the King Arthur legend. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the carousel is King Arthur's carousel, officially. And, um, of course, as we know, uh, Disney did uh, their 
great little animated film several years ago, The Sword in the Stone, which is popular. You know, kids love it. And they've got their little Sword in the Stone kind of attraction, you might call it, little thing there. And, and each day they have a little ceremony where they let kids, you know, try their hand at pulling the sword out of the stone. And I think they let uh, one kid do it. And I don't think it comes up all the way. It, it comes up part of the way, and they make a big fanfare. But I believe from as near as I've been able to get information, I believe that sword in that stone sits right over where the intersection is. Can you go up there and, like, stand on the spot where the lines cross, or is that, like, all roped off and shit now? Oh, no, you can go right up to the sword in the stone any time of day and, you know, goof around with it, get people get their pictures taken. Like I said, they have a little Merlin guy come out with a with a uh, the dowsing rod, which is interesting because dowsing rods uh, are associated with, you know, electromagnetic currents running through the ground. So it's almost it's almost like they're saying, you know, I dare you <laughs> to not get what we know, you know. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's almost funny. Yeah, yeah, it almost makes you it almost gives the message yeah. like, you know, there used to be all this power that was emanating from this spot, but now it's locked in the stone. Now the other thing that is there as I demonstrate in the book. If you stand in the castle with your back to Main Street and you're facing inside Fantasyland, you will see um, in order a, a little piece of like landscaping with a with a hedge, a short hedge design. Then right behind that, the Sword and the Stone, and then just beyond the Sword and the Stone, a few yards, is the carousel. Now that hedge, when you go up to it closely, has an interesting crisscross pattern that's almost like a sine wave or kind of like a symbol of energy, as if, hey, the power runs through here. And the sword in the stone, the sword pointing down, is it's pointing, it's under here directly. So the, the, the hedge says energy. For those who know, the hedge says it's energy and the sword and the stone, the sword is the pointer saying, and here it is. Right under here is the intersection. And remember, these are intersecting wavy patterns that also coincidentally resemble the Masonic square and compass. Huh. <laughs> and, and I'd like to say for the record, as I say in the book, Walt Disney was not a Freemason. I'd like to put that to rest. Um, I, I researched that, and I found in more than one source stated in the book, and, and I found it elsewhere. Walt Disney, he was a Malay when he was in high school, but a lot of boys were. But, you know, I continue to hear these stories, you know, Walt Disney was a Freemason. He was not. Yeah, exactly. He was too busy being Walt Disney. For sure, that's true. Whether, you know, he may have had weird government connections. You know, the whole thing with the space Defense movies Department. and stuff like that. And, yeah. yeah, so, but you never know what what that dude's deal was, I guess, but I don't know if he was, I don't think he was nefarious as far as I can tell. Right. Before we get to C.B. Wood's other parks, uh, let's talk a little bit about sort of uh, Disney World. Have you uncovered anything about that? Because I know it was built like in 1971, so it's like way, it's like 15, 16 years after Disneyland was built, and obviously right. because of the falling out, C.B. Wood probably almost certainly didn't have anything to do with the design of Disney World. So is there any sort of esoteric connections there between Disney World and Disneyland? No, no. Um, Disney World 
is uh, as far as this thing is concerned with what C.B. Wood did, um, I've, I've found nothing. Now, I have not delved deeply into Disney World yet because, as I said, Disneyland opened me up to some things that I just now, with a co-author, finished another book. We just got the rough draft done, and it's opening up into yet another book. Um, and, and so to give you an idea of how big this thing is, you know, that I've come across, that I and the people that have helped me, I'd like to say we, you know, have come across. Um, I just haven't had the time, really, to dig deeply into the whole Disney World thing. I will say this, though. It is within the the range zone of that belt that um, it definitely, that 3040 thing that I was telling you about, yeah. that um, I do believe that that has to do with the fact that it's more successful than parks in other places. But looking at the map, let me glance at my map here, it is, interestingly, not far away from a major curvy linear line running to the west of it, and also a major one of the straight grid lines, the whole planetary-wide grid lines, yeah. run very close to it, but not exactly through where um, Disney World is. But, um, you know, another researcher looks into that. They might find some very interesting data, and I wouldn't be surprised if when I do look into Disney World, I find some interesting things. Yeah, well, you make the point in the book, too, about how after they move the carousel, things seem to kind of go downhill a little bit for Disneyland, where, you know, they just the upkeep really sort of started to go down the tubes. And, And nowadays... You know, the perception, at least amongst everybody I know, is that Disney World in Florida is like a thousand times better than Disneyland. Like Disneyland, the original, is like considered the crappier version of Disney World. Yeah, the Magic Kingdom, um, and we're specifically talking, when we talk Disney World, we're specifically talking about the Magic Kingdom, the original uh, Magic Kingdom of Disneyland, not the Epcot and all the other wonderful things. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, that's that's what I've been hearing, um, especially in recent years. It's like they focus on, and, and I unfortunately have not been to Disney World yet. I, I need to go make that trip. Um, but uh, as somebody who's grown up at Disneyland, um, I hate to say it, but uh, there have been times where I've been appalled at the condition of uh, the park um, in places and, and some of their choices. Um, it just, it's, it's as if it's a second thought or if it, it's just a, uh, a um, the, 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 the tap that they go to, you know, to get, get more milk or, or whatever. It's just, it's just the ATM, as it were, for them. You know, crank the people through. It doesn't have to, in other words, the condition of the park um, and uh, the attractions sometimes. Walt Disney would never have tolerated that. Never. Yeah. If you're looking for Joe Cooper, I suggest you look wherever you find the most heinous, blatant, and vile exploitation of children on the planet. Scenario number two. Coop went to Disney World. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. I was going to do your family a favor and hook up the Disney Channel for free. Well, forget it. It's strange how Disneyland, the original, has become the black sheep of the two Disneys. It's particularly since this 1982 change, which coincides with what I believe was the disengagement of this device. Hmm. 
Exactly. Now, could it be... I heard they bought like a ton more land for Disney World than Disneyland originally or something like that. Is that accurate, do you think? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's a big chunk of real estate they bought. Yeah, like maybe they just have so much space down there that they can just keep adding stuff. Because like they're always adding new cool stuff down there in Disney World, and you never hear anything cool being added to Disneyland. Well, and then when they do, you know, I, I you know, kind of disagree with some of their choices at Disneyland. Um in, 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 you know, what they naturally because they don't have as much land, you know, the, you, you sometimes, you know, hey, this is in progress, it'll be open, you know, um, at such and such date. But it's just, it's, it's not so much Disney World's got more land, but it's still the quality and the manner in which they execute things at Disneyland that is, you know, sometimes distasteful and, and disappointing. They've let Tomorrowland just, as I state in the book, um, in a very philosophical manner, um, what they've allowed to be done with, uh, or not be done with Tomorrowland, I should say, it's it's like it's that extra room in your house where you just have a bunch of crap, nobody sleeps in there, nobody does anything in there. Yeah. Um, that's what Tomorrowland has become, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. I've never been to Disney World either, but I've been itching to go for the last few years. I've been to Disneyland as a kid, but post-1982, so... I never yeah. got to experience the uh, what may have been going on there. Now let's talk about C.V. Wood's other parks, because as you establish in the book, um, not only was he probably in the know as far as these ley lines, for lack of a better term, but he was also deeply interested in the esoteric, which ties it all together in a big way when you really think about it, because not only would he have to know about these lines, but he'd have to believe in them. And I think yeah. that's really the big key to C.V. Wood. Not only did he know about the lines, he believed in the power behind the lines, and then after he left Disney, after he was ousted, it sounds like, uh, then he went on to build other parks like around the country, and probably tried to duplicate the esoteric success of Disneyland. Yes, and interestingly, the only one of his parks that he designed after Disneyland that has had any success and still exists to this day is the original Six Flags, and that's Six Flags over Texas, in Arlington. And what's interesting is he built the one, uh, a place called Magic Mountain, up in Colorado. He built one, I think it's New Jersey, um, in, uh, Pleasure Island, or New Hampshire maybe, New Jersey. That's one's north, one's south. I used to live back there, so I know the, the lay of the land. Here's what's interesting. That one was not on a ley line. The one in Colorado was not on a ley line. But Six Flags that still exist to this day, designed by C.V. Wood in Arlington, is smack dab on a ley line, on a, one of the curvy linear lines. Coming out, to, uh, I believe, through Dallas, through that area, yeah. Um, and it exists to this day. So, you, you know, you have to say, gosh, uh, hmm, this guy w was doing this on purpose, and, and he, he must have been aware of his results. Like, hmm, the ones not built on these locations just didn't seem to capture the same magic. So I, I would like to, I have not done this research yet because I would have to probably go to Texas to do this, but um, what's been on my mind is the exact position of the carousel at that Six Flags down there in Texas. Absolutely, yeah. Now, is there anything weird I could look for? at the Pleasure Island in Wakefield, Mass. I don't even know. I'm under the impression there's barely anything even still there, but I'm just um, wondering if there was anything interesting that I would 
go there and then look for? Because it was not built on in association with one of these, you know, intersections or these ley lines, um, I, you know, I would doubt that there'd be anything. But if you're if you were to look, I would say look for any um, sword and stone imagery, um, any Arthurian imagery, okay. um, Arthurian legend imagery. And uh, how close is Wakefield to like what part of the state is it in? Probably 10 or 15 minutes away from Boston. It's really close. Okay, so it's in the northeastern or southeastern? Northeastern, right? northeastern yeah, mass probably, yeah. Okay, okay. I would look for um, anything. And again, let me step over here to my map and take a quick glance. Right, yeah, there's no no curvy linears running through Boston. And uh, the nearest one is out to the east on uh, that uh, the Cape Cod area. Yeah. But yeah, look for any you know Arthurian symbolism. Interesting. Okay, so then it stands to reason then that even though he may have known about the crossing ley lines and everything, he he was only able to work with the material that he had. I guess you could say. So you yeah, know, you know, if somebody in Colorado says we want to pay you money to design an amusement park, you know, you're going to do it. Yeah. And he, <laughs> he probably he probably looked in the area and said, well, okay, there's not any of the lines here, whatever. But hey, you know, it's a paying job. But I think what it was is where he was hired to do a job in an area where it just so happened he could take advantage of this uh, energy system, he would. But if there it wasn't there to be taken advantage of, you know, he'd design him a park and take his check and on to the next project. I guess in a way that kind of wraps up Latitude 33, the book. Now, obviously, I think you wrote that a couple of years ago, right? Uh, yes, I uh, wrote it in '07. Came out in early '08. Okay, so almost two years ago. So, and you said that like that sort of kicked off a whole slew of new stuff that you've you've you know uncovered and come up with. So I guess let's let's talk a little bit about about that sort of stuff. I imagine once you go down that rabbit hole, then you start finding all kinds of crazy stuff. So you know what what what's really been piquing your interest since you wrote Latitude 33. Well, wow, that's and you're absolutely right there. A rabbit hole, indeed. Um, it's one of those things where where do I begin? Um, I the Disney research to keep it. I'll, I'll try to keep it simple. The Disney research made me real curious about uh, because I have these maps. Oh, that, one thing I wanted to say: these maps I'm in possession of. Yeah. Um, some sources will say that ancient uh, alchemists were very protective of, and, and um, they, they deemed very important, the maps of the telluric currents that they possessed, okay? And essentially, I had these things for, oh my gosh, almost two years before I realized what I'm in possession of are the same things that these alchemists had in ancient times. I, I have these maps made for me by hand, as I said, by author Sechery, of the entire United States. Um, I'm standing here looking at a United States map that has all the major intersections where the lines curve through. I mean, it's it's an astounding piece of work that he's done. I also have um, a map of just Arizona, you know, that gets deeper into it in New Mexico, and of course, various maps of regions in uh, California. Um, and he always produce. If I need another one, he'll produce it. Um, so naturally, because I had these maps, um, the first one I had was the Southern California one, and I, I'm looking, well, look at all these lines and all the other communities they pass through. You know, is there any other weirdness 
you know, associated with where these lines pass through. And so I looked at, I live here in a town that's kind of near um, San Bernardino, which is uh, the butt of jokes <laughs> throughout California, uh, probably deservedly so in many ways. And I just out of curiosity, you know, was wondering, well, gosh, is there any weirdness associated with where this line passes through? And um, indeed, I found a haunting. And that haunting led to what has become um, the most extraordinary thing I have ever researched in my life, the most amazing thing I've ever investigated. It, um, it, it is directly connected to these lines. It um, has implications that go back through history and, and up into current times. It, um, it has to do with ghosts. It has to do with psychotronic phenomena, interdimensional stuff. There's murder involved. It will just blow you away. And the the, the new book um, I have uh, co-authored with um, Richard Spence, the author of Secret Agent 666, mm-hmm. which is all about Aleister Crowley and British intelligence and such. He's a professor at the University of Idaho. His specialty is um, history. He's a history professor. His specialty is military and uh, intelligence history, espionage history. The guy is just incredible. His work is amazing. Highly recommend it. And he and I have, uh, you know, worked on this and together discovered, um, talk about Shelby Downard. Uh, Oh, my gosh. Um, Synchronicities, um, memory theater, uh, and this, this thing is... You know, I like to joke around. You know, uh, with you know, I, I I like to joke around that this this would humble me if I were humble. But <laughs> seriously, all joking aside, this is not the usual gregarious ha 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 jokester guy Walter that you hear like on Greg's show and other places. What I've been investigating the last two years is truly it kind of leaves me speechless in a way. Uh, it's 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 really it's amazed me. And I, you know, we've just finished the rough draft of the first book written on it, and it's just the beginning. Um, the second book is going to present some pretty astounding things that are linked to the things I initially discovered with the Disneyland book research. I don't want you to spoil the book or anything, but are we talking about more cross cross section lines here? Oh yes, yes, absolutely. And are there? locations elsewhere in the U.S. that you can tell us about that have these cross lines that may have something going on that people might could be able to check out? Absolutely. Um, I'll tell you what, the, the biggest one we have found so far um, identified in North America is in Arizona, right over there in Phoenix on South Mountain, and I investigated that with Kevin Smith. Um, in fact, we did a little video at the site where this major intersection of about 14 of these curvy linear lines. Whoa. Yeah. Um, meet at South Mountain. And there's a guy named Jeff Woolline. I don't know if you're familiar with his research. Interesting guy, um, kind of a amateur expert um, who has presented some strange things coming out of the mountain. But uh, that's not all the weirdness associated with South Mountain. There's a... Uh, there's a major intersection, of course, at Colorado Springs, and those of you who know your Tesla history and weird DOD technology history know that uh, Nikola Tesla went to Colorado Springs and, and did some just 
really amazing stuff there. And subsequent to that, uh, it became pretty much a DOD U.S. Air Force Center of um, advanced research. I don't huh. know if many people know that, but it has an intersection of about one, two, three, four, five, just at my glance count, like five or six. Um, up north in Glacier National Park, there is a major intersection of one, two, three, four, looks like four or five of these things. Um, what about on the east coast? We got any intersections uh, yeah. on the east coast? Well, on the east coast, you're looking at what's interesting is we, we, we're talking about intersections. We haven't got into the spiral patterns, which I get into in the next book, in the next two books that I'm alluding to, but the spirals are very important. On the East Coast, there's not as many, interestingly enough, there's not as many intersections as there are curvy linears kind of flowing with each other. It, it's, kind of, it's kind of odd. In fact, the only point of what I'd call an intersection that I can see is way up above um, Nova Scotia. Huh. Yeah, up, up there almost in Quebec's waters. Interesting. Yeah, but there, there's lines going through Quebec. There now, here's here's an interesting thing we get into in the new book that um, I'll throw this one at uh, at you, and for the listeners, there is a major curvy linear that flows down the east coast from it, it flows just south of Boston. It goes right through where Manhattan joins uh, Long Island, right on through Philadelphia. And right on down to Norfolk. Does that sound familiar to you? Yeah, that's the East Coast Corridor, pretty much. East Coast Corridor, but also that we've got a major curvilinear ley line, as it were, flowing from New York through Philadelphia onto Norfolk. Think for 1943, the Philadelphia Experiment. That uh, allegedly yes. disappears out of Philadelphia, appears in Norfolk, and then back to Philly, or the other way around. I, I get them mixed up. But it's interesting, I had an aha moment when that was identified to me, because immediately I thought, well, were they doing something with these lines? And indeed, as we discuss in the new book, Dr. Spence and I, they were, the Navy was doing something with telluric currents decades prior to the Philadelphia experiment on Long Island. Huh, interesting. Now, I know you guard these maps pretty closely. Are they going to be in the new book or no? Segments of them... Uh, will be just little segments of them. Um, maybe in the second new book. Um, the first book is called um, Empire of Pan, and uh, this, in Empire of Pan Two is probably going to feature more of the, the maps. Okay, cool. Because it would be interesting to really pinpoint some of these other cross sections and see. Has anyone tried to, aside from the base there in Colorado Springs, has anyone built anything cool on any of these cross-sections, or are they pretty natural finding areas like what it sounds like in Arizona? Well, some of them are natural areas. Uh, some of them are very much, you know, downtown areas of cities like, you know, like Dallas. And uh, uh, it's um, the, the, the spirals our new research is getting into what's been built on the points of the spiral patterns that we talk about in the future books. But uh, it's pretty much, you know, if, if uh, people wanted to go to where the intersection points are and, and observe what's there, 
you know, they might may be able to make an interesting discovery on their own. Yeah. Um, and well, for instance, here's an intersection at um, at Pyramid Lake in northern Nevada, and as we know, Pyramid Lake has a weird pyramid-shaped mountain in it. That's why it's called Pyramid Lake. I believe it jets out of the water, and uh, that's where an intersection is. So I would look for natural formations that may not actually been natural. In other words, some alternative um, archaeology types argue that the Pyramid and Pyramid Lake may not be natural. It might have been a very ancient, very old actual pyramid constructed by, you know, some past civilization. Exactly, yeah, and that goes into the whole idea of these pyramids being built on ley lines and stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I, I'm kind of noteless now as far as the <laughs> ley line stuff, so what, what other stuff should we talk about here for ley lines? Well, it, it's interesting. Uh, I, I will tell you that I, I did some uh, analysis of personal data in a so- association with these lines, the curvy linear ones in particular. And what I was discovering is is that most of the time throughout my life, I have ended up living on one of these lines. Now, imagine that kind of discovery. You know, because when you're a kid, you're not the one driving where you live, if you know what I mean. Yeah. It's your mom and dad going to deciding where you live and and you know, and and then even the the decisions you make as an adult. You know, when I lived on the lines in San Diego, it was because and see if you get the clue in here. It's because I was born there, never lived there again until I went to college at San Diego State, but I had always loved San Diego. I'd always loved how I felt while there. I'd always just had great experiences in San Diego, so I wanted to go back. And interestingly, everywhere I've lived down there, you got a line going through that area. I mean, that in itself suggests that uh, we are drawn in some ways to these places where these lines flow through. Another interesting thing, um, I have been investigating as part of the new book that will be coming out, some interesting, very suspicious deaths that my co-author and I believe are murders. In some cases, they're laid out in straight line alignments. Oh, weird. Um, yeah, um, and the book, uh, you, it'll it'll knock your socks off, what we discovered. Well, when's that going to drop? When are people going to be able to get a ha- their hands on um, well, these books? Probably um, sometime in 2010, the uh, first Empire of Pan will be coming out. As I said, we're wrapping up the, uh, the rough draft. Um, we're talking with um, a couple of publishers, which I won't disclose at the moment, um, but once uh, once that's finalized, and we uh, get the, uh, the the cleanup on the draft and get, you know, the illustrations inserted. It'll be sometime in 2010, hopefully not uh, as far as a year from now, you know, hopefully like next summer. Okay. That's not written in stone. Well, I won't press for too many more – I won't press for any more details on the new books because we'll just wait for those to come out so I can read them and know what I'm talking about when I ask you about, about okay. them. Otherwise, I'm just sort of like a blind man in an orgy here. I'm just trying to feel my way through it. <laughs> um, and you know what? That's exactly how those of us who've gone down this rabbit hole feel. It's like, oh, my God, this includes everything, and it, it truly is – I, like I said, I've had some weird experiences, but uh, Tim, this is this has been the most astounding thing I have ever researched. 
Okay, now when I was talking to Greg earlier today, he suggested I ask you about a few things here, so we'll, we'll, we'll touch on okay. some of these things. And I heard you have an interest in underground civilizations and the, and, <laughs> and the hollow earth theory. So what, what, yes. what's your interest in those topics? Well, um, uh, this goes back to the uh, late 80s when I um, first, uh, you know, learned that there even was this hollow earth theory. And uh, that coincided about the time when I had a personal epiphany about UFOs in which the thought first occurred to me, it's, of course, not original to me, just for it's the moment that I first learned, figured it out. I thought, gosh, you know, this whole UFO thing, what if the big secret is is that they're not coming from outer space so much? And I do believe there's people on other planets. But what if, for the most part, the big mystery, the secret is, is that they're coming from here? Um, either our own secret technology, which I have said before, and I say now, uh, the great majority of sightings, I think it's that, are that. But there's a percentage of them that, uh, hmm, maybe it's uh, some type of some civilization of people that are they're hidden so the that you know when i stumbled upon this theory that gosh there's this hollow earth theory out there it really intrigued me and it made a lot of sense and then i thought about the things my dad told me about roswell in which he insisted uh, to the day he died that um they were not extraterrestrials that he, he insisted that they were not extraterrestrials. His story, as I've written about under my pseudonym, the guest in Fate Magazine, is that there was this is this hidden civilization inside the planet, and it was they who crashed at Roswell, and that's you know according to him, uh, you know vehemently insists that you know that's the truth of that, and so therefore. I really got interested in, well, okay, what what more evidence is there of this, um, you know, what's inside the planet? Because this is really intriguing. Yeah. And I, I discovered that there's quite a bit of historical evidence for this. Um, and that's really, you know, that interest has led me to go out to Death Valley. Greg went with me once with some other uh, like-minded folks and, uh, you know, to investigate where there's allegedly, you know, openings and such. We didn't find any. But, yeah, that is a passion of mine that kind of I've set aside upon making the discovery that I've been writing about since the Disneyland book. But um, I'm always willing to jump back into that because it's something I am deeply intrigued with. It's interesting, the hollow earth. I've, I have uh, always had an interest in that. A lot of people are quick to dismiss it, but I'm usually, uh, I keep an open mind to it. And let me, let me add, when I say that I'm intrigued with it and stuff, I personally, in a practical sense, I believe, okay, here's the deal. There is a possibility that to some degree this may be true. And when I say to some degree, it may not be this total fantasy world idea of the, the Earth is literally like a hollow ball with this right, great, yeah. amazing civilization. It could be that there are vast zones, and this is what my dad said, that there are there are vast zones that are habitable underneath the surface, inside mountains, under, you know, mountains, that kind of thing, that, um, you know, I, I think that there, I think there is, is possibly some, I'm looking for the practical reality that explains the theories. Right, right, right. Oftentimes when people hear hollow earth, they just think of the classic hollow earth idea, which yeah. is kind of impractical in some right. ways. Right. So, but when you look at it in the form of you know, caverns and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It's entirely possible. Sure. Did your father have any other revelations about Roswell and ETs and stuff? What was his role? He was in the Air Force. Is that uh, how he knew all this stuff? 
he was in the Air Force and he worked in a physiological training unit, uh, basically running pilots through the altitude chambers. He was assigned to George Air Force Base in the late 50s. And um, his unit at George Air Force Base was the unit he and four other guys were the guys who conducted conducted all the ground tests for the Mercury Program spacesuits, those silver ones you see in the right stuff. Mm-hmm. And my dad's unit at George were the guys who did the ground pressure tests in their altitude chamber. So, therefore, he had to have quite an impressive clearance, I mean, way up in the stratosphere there, oh, yeah. um, to, to work with those things. And because he worked, essentially, it was in the space medicine, you know, um, arena, because he worked in that, naturally, if you got something that crashed and you think it's from outer space, you're going to bring people in that, um, you know, are, are going to have to, at least at that time, were aware of the cutting-edge material that was known as it was known then, you know, to to work on this. Now, the, the story is, is that in the late 50s, um, my dad was back doing some instructing at Gunner Air Force Base in Montgomery, Alabama. It was about the time he met my mom. And um, he was still assigned to George, but he was back in Alabama doing some testing. And in the late 50s, he and his guys are told that uh, they've got to go do a little assignment over uh, in Texas. So they get on the plane, and somewhere over Louisiana, that airplane makes a right banking turn and heads north. And a man uh, comes out of the front of the craft, cockpit area, and introduces himself. He's an intelligence officer. And he tells them they're not going to Texas. He says that they're going to Wright-Patterson. Huh. And uh, when they get there, they're all briefed in on Roswell. And they're told that something just like Roswell has happened again, only this time in eastern Arizona, in the vicinity of Winslow, of all places. And, um, wow, from there, it just, it, it's wild. But uh, they were part of uh, retrieval of a lost occupant or pilot, as it were. Um, this is my dad's story now. Mm-hmm. Um and apparently it had happened just like it happened uh, in Roswell, and they had their liaison with us, with our authorities, and they came to us and said, help us get our guy back home, and, you know, and so apparently there was a massive search and rescue, as it were, and it involved um, a vast underground area of eastern Arizona, and my dad... Uh, encountered the people. He said they're very much as human as you and I, but they've been down there in their little world, and they have a different technology base than we do, and it was quite an intense experience. Um, as he told me this, he reaches, he would reach one point um, where he would just break down sobbing because um, the guy he was working with was killed in a very, you know, shockingly just quick and thorough way. And, weird. Um, yeah, very weird, very weird, and um, you know, so that's and again, I tell the story in greater detail in uh, Fate magazine from a couple of years ago. I hate to be the the bearer of cynical or skeptical news, but I know that you did do some work for the FBI and the AFOSI, uh-huh. Air Force Office of Special Investigations. Yes, I did. I was a special agent with the Air Force OSI. Now, what they've gotten kind of. 
a reputation because of, uh, well, in part, I guess, because of Greg's book and, and because of the actions of dudes like Rick Doty and some of those guys, because I know they were AFOSI. Were you involved yeah. in, in, you know, stuff like that, or, or were these more just like, you know, run-of-the-mill special investigations? Well, um, it's no, kind of I oxymoronic, was, but you know, I, I, mean. I was a counterintelligence guy, and I was chief of uh, a counter-espionage operations branch at Wright Patterson. Basically, I ran the double agent uh, operations branch. But before that, of course, with the FBI, I was a counterintelligence guy. With uh, OSI, after I did my initial probe year doing run-of-the-mill stuff, I was brought right into counterintelligence because of my experience with the FBI. I've, uh, I've been pretty much a spy chaser, spy hunter, spy runner. Um, through most of the career until the terrorism era, and you still applied the same type of skills, just going after terrorist spies instead of the other, the traditional. Um, I will, you know, I've never met Rick Doty. I don't know him personally. Um, I will tell you that when I was at OSI, it was after his stuff that made him notorious. Yeah. And um, I worked a project. I, I presented a project which the only concern they had for it, because it was solid otherwise, the only concern they expressed to me was, okay, make sure that you're reporting as you're supposed to report to your superiors and, um, you know, this parameter, that parameter, and they did invoke Doty's name. They said, look, um, this guy Doty embarrassed the hell out of us in the Air Force, and, you know, OSI in particular, and I think that was their concern. Was uh, So... All I want to say is that, you know, OSI is an organization. Um, what, what Doty did or did not do, good or bad, um, whatever, whatever it was he did to piss them off was not simply being caught at something OSI, you know, regularly did or advocated, you know, what, whatever the details of that. And he can tell you best, you know, that's between him and the command. But from my experience in OSI, there's just no way that any of us, you know, myself, you know, could have had something, you know, result that way because it, it's just the way the way you have to do things. You know, you're always you're having to, you know, the reporting both, both uh, verbally and with the paperwork and you know the oversight. Yeah, you know, it's there, and and it's not necessary to, you know. Uh, so I I don't know, and and that's I'm not trying to skirt the issue, but I like to be honest, and you know I didn't work whatever it was he was doing. I've never met the man, so I don't know the details as well as he does, not yeah. nearly. Um, it's just kind of one of those yeah, it's one of those awkward things people can point to. Yeah, well you know like I said I, it, it, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring it up, but oh absolutely I, I hear you. you. You know I got no no problem with it. I can't imagine why they'd want you to disinform the paranormal world about a ley line intersection underneath Disneyland that no longer is even in operation. So it's you know they they probably wish I'd shut up admitting I telling people I was an OSI agent because of this stuff. <laughs> They're like, oh God, Bosley. But uh, no, they've never they've no one. Uncle Sam has. No, no one's ever. Uh, you know, maybe they're giving me the silent treatment. I don't know, but uh, no one said anything overtly. Um, I haven't had anything weird happen that I would attribute to OSI or the FBI. Um, the weird things that I've had happen, I would attribute to other possible suspects um, in the, the greater mystery. Now I know that in the Doty era, that they were concerned about 
potential spies masquerading as UFO researchers? Was that something Absolutely. that came up while you were in there? It's something that um, I took a, a look at because, you know, as I, you know, say to people, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a counterintelligence agent, you know, working for national security, and, and my job as an Air Force OSI agent is to protect Air Force assets, you know, that are out there working for the people. And um, it's just a natural course of my uh, duties as, a, as an agent that, uh, you know, if I see where I got a group of UFO enthusiasts and they're out there at the perimeter of one of our bases, say Area 51, and they got their cameras and binoculars, you know, they're all aimed at the skies looking for the, the flying saucer. And there's the guy who came over from a foreign country. Yeah. And he's aiming his binoculars and his camera, which, by the way, is clearly more expensive and more advanced than what the American folks are carrying. <laughs> yeah. And he's got his lenses aimed at the base. Um, yeah, I'm going to be a little curious about wh who this guy is and where he's coming from. My concern was never with, um, you know, American citizens. Um, you know, I'm believe me, as agents go, I'm probably their best friend. But... Um, so, yeah, you know, in, in a very basic way, you know, I was naturally curious about that. I, I, you know, there's nothing I can say any more than that Yeah. about that. But as, as a basic situation, yeah, that, uh, yeah that, uh, that's something that it's natural would be looked at. Absolutely, yeah. Now, what about Area 51? Have you ever been inside there? Um, I did some work for the FBI that was adjacent to there. Um, prior to my Air Force years, uh, my Air Force duties did not take me to uh, Area 51. Okay. I worked with guys who had been there fairly regularly. Didn't get into too many conversations that uh, I could talk about here. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but you know, o OSI, we have this section that is, we, we all do, all counterintelligence guys in OSI do program protection, but we got one section that's dedicated to it, and they're just fantastic at what they do. They they really are outstanding agents, and they, they really do a hell of a job. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. I know we're treading on some potentially classified ground and stuff, so I don't want to get you in any trouble or anything like that. So. Well, I'm an old hand at not going there. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's the impression I'm under. It seems like you, you know what you're doing here. So, Now, you've been doing some personal security anti-terrorism stuff uh, for the last few years. I know you were over in Afghanistan and stuff like that. Are you still doing that sort of thing, or are you uh, sort of easing out of it now? Well, I'm, I'm actually going to be uh, hopefully getting back into the international game. I stopped doing it while my son was in high school because I wanted to be around um, during those years. And uh, so yeah, my, I'm doing a – I'm a private investigator, a licensed private investigator. Oh, I'm cool. My own little, little firm, one-man firm. And um, I've done background investigations for the government, just, you know, did – you know, worked on the publishing and the writing. It, 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 taking the time off from the travel gave me the opportunity to investigate these things I've been writing about. I mean, it's really been great for that. Um, but I did uh, – between 2000 and uh, – into 2006, I was uh, a contract consultant for corporate clients that uh, travel and work and live around the world. Took me to the Middle East, uh, North Africa, South America, you name it. I pretty much, you know, I saw a big chunk of the world, Central Asia, all of Europe, you know, the whole thing, and um, doing threat assessment work and, and seeing a lot of interesting places. Anytime I could go see an ancient site, you know, where I was, I definitely would take advantage of that. And I've done some personal um, travel in line with these interests with uh, David Hatcher Childress down to uh, Peru and Bolivia oh, nice. and 
couple of trips to Mexico, the old uh, pyramid sites, and those I highly recommend those trips. Oh yeah, I would definitely love to get down to those areas and, and check them but out. But I'm looking, I'm looking to get back into the world travel. I miss it very much. So. So like, what you do is kind of in the realm of like the Blackwater style type of thing. No, they're more um, uh, now. In, now, in I've worked in situations where the Blackwater guys were right there where I was working. Mm-hmm. Um, but but as far as and I have worked in places where every time I stepped outside of the building every morning I had to be wearing a vest and had a rifle with me. That was Afghanistan, that was yeah. Iraq, rifle and pistol, the whole thing. But what I did specifically was different than what they do. Those things are for my protection and you know and uh you know, just in the course of what I was doing. They are more the um from physical security and you know, to yeah. protective service ops. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sounds like a lot of dudes are retiring from the armed services and getting into that now because the money's better and the benefits are better and everything seems to be a little bit better for the private contractors uh, than when you're actually in the service. Everything's kind of slow right now. I think everything's on hold until they see what the economy's going to do. It's been a very, it has had a very interesting effect. I, I think a lot of these companies are making do with who they have um, with the changing priorities in um, what the U.S. is doing you know, in various places around the world, I think some of the places are holding back on, um, you know, other, other than what they're already in place doing. Um, so it's going to be, it's an interesting period we're in right now. But yeah, you're right. A lot of guys like me with, I have both, I have the benefit of both the federal, you know, investigative and the military background. Oh yeah. So yeah, I've moved in that world, both sides of it. And, nice. Uh, yeah. So you're sitting in the catbird seat then. It's it's a it's a good place to be. <laughs> um, so I, that's why I'm working on getting back into it because the beauty is when you're a contractor, you can go away for a few months and then stay home for a month. So exactly. It works yeah. Well, with the writing and the research that I do, if I need to, you know, be promoting a book, I could just not travel. Now you said uh, that that you haven't heard much from Disney. Is that still the case? Are they still pretty mum on on your research into uh, all the stuff that's gone on there? I, I've heard absolutely nothing directly from them. I had a very strange and um, kind of potentially uh, negative experience that I'm probably going to write about in the second of the new books because it's pertinent to the research Mm -hmm. that uh, was in a very odd way indirectly um, associated with Disney, kind of direct-indirect, as it were, um, which is – it was a real interesting episode. But other than that – I find, and I find this significant, that I've not heard anything from Disney. I would have thought by now, you know, okay, bub, you know, this book you've written. Um, so you got to wonder, we've analyzed it, is their silence, are they giving me the silent treatment so that, you know, the, the masses out there will ignore me like they are? Or are they giving me the silent treatment because I haven't said anything untrue yet? Yeah, and I think... Also, um, even though I was disappointed that they moved the carousel, I do think that in in a way it sort of generates interest in people wanting to go to Disneyland to check it out. Like I still want to go now and and stand where the lines cross at the Sorcerer's Stone part, even though the carousel is not on it anymore. So, you know, if anything, they're interested in the bottom line over there, it seems, nowadays, and so they're probably like, hey, let him write whatever he wants. It's probably good for business because now people are coming to see where the lines cross. If they had any yeah, sense, yeah. they would put the carousel back because then it would really be 
you know, popular and people would want to go and ride the carousel just for that experience. Oh, but Tim, uh, um, with, with what we've discovered down the rabbit hole, the, the, the powers that be, the powers that know about what's being done with these lines and this energy, they don't want that device reengaged. They don't want more people experiencing that. So uh, that's uh, that's part of some of the uh, theoretical conclusions we're drawing based on what we're finding. Interesting, interesting. All right, so you've you've teased us here with the uh, impending. Uh, arrival of Empire of Pan coming in hopefully the summer of 2010, and then I figure the sequel to that will be hot on the heels of the original or the first book being published. What other kind of stuff do you have that you're working on right now? I know that you're a frequent co-host on our mutual friend Greg Bishop's show, Radio Mysterioso, um, where I've heard you on there quite a bit. So, uh, you know, what other kind of stuff do you have going on that people can look forward to? Well, um, it, it's interesting. I also am halfway through a novel, a work of fiction, um, that was inspired by this very research with Empire of Pan and Disneyland that is just a the few people that have read what's done of the novel. It's just they've really come back. Just they say, my God, you wrote this? <laughs> and I laugh. Oh, yeah, I did. And um, here's the interesting thing about the novel. The things that we weren't willing to say in the nonfiction Empire of Pan, I'm going there in the fiction. So um, as soon as I get the novel finished and get a publisher secured, because I want to go with one of the bigger houses than my own company, um, then I will let you know, you know, when when that would be coming out. Because you read the Disneyland book, you read Empire of Pan when it comes out, and there's things you're going to wonder, well, hey, wait a minute, and you probably find that those things you're wondering, those bigger things that we weren't willing to, you know, say or go out on that land for are going to be uh, dramatized in the novel. Nice. And uh, I'm very proud of it. It's some of the best writing I've ever done, and it's, again, it's it's chock full of real stuff. And other than that, um, I'm just, gosh, you know, as if that's not enough. I, I mean, it's just been so crazy with this research. Yeah. That, um, you know, it really, it has, I could spend, I could spend years just mining this, what I've discovered. That's how, that's how big it is. But I will say that as a publisher, the next big thing that's uh, coming out from my company, Lost Connet Library, is Seshari's Full Saga. Um, it's a trilogy, but we're releasing it in a single-volume hardcover. Oh, the nice. Wonder of the Worlds trilogy. And this thing is amazing, and he's wrapping up the third book now. It's going to be about 1,100 pages, and we're, going to, we're, we're looking to come out with that uh, next summer. And that's about Tesla, Mark Twain, Harry Houdini going to Mars in 1893, and, and Martians in the underground on Earth. Oh, wow. This, and, and searching for Amelia Earhart and some weird stuff associated with her disappearance. It's just an amazing work of fiction that this man has uh, put together. So I'm really excited about that as a publisher. You know, we're finally getting that whole trilogy out there. Awesome. But, gosh, that, that should probably be enough right there. I think so. I think so. Yeah. And uh, what's the website for your publishing house so people can keep an eye on that for future books? Okay. You can go to right now. We're, we're working off of wonderoftheworlds.com. Now, 
presently there's a banner there for the Wonder of the World's books, and um, that's where I have the magazine that I was doing. Um, we're not doing that particular magazine anymore, but the, it's free magazine, a PDF download. Um, I'm coming out with a new magazine of a different title next year sometime, PDF free for readers, totally free. Um, but uh, at present, wonderoftheworlds.com is where uh, things associated with the publishing company um, right now are pushed. Okay, sounds good. And people can pick up Latitude 33 via kevinsmithshow.com. They have a little store on there, and that's where you can find Latitude 33. Well, Walter, as I said, uh, Latitude 33 really blew my mind and uh, was amazing stuff. And I have a feeling, based on the teasers you've given us for Empire of Pan, that it's really just the very beginning of what's going to turn out to be some remarkable new and enlightening research into the world of these energy lines that encompass the globe. So I really look forward to being in touch with you again in the future, exploring this topic some more in the future. I feel like, you know, like I said, uh, I feel like the, the Latitude 33 was just the appetizer and the main course is on its way to everybody coming soon with Empire of Pan. But what I liked of the advertiser was tremendous. I really enjoyed it quite a bit, and I hope folks pick up Latitude 33 and check it out. It'll give you a whole new perspective on Disneyland that chances are almost certainly you never even considered before, and that's that's where I was after reading the book. I was just like, wow, there is so much going on here at Disneyland that I never even would have considered. I thought it was just a theme park, but really it was almost an esoteric experiment on a grand scale. And uh, that's the theory and story that is explained and put forth in Latitude 33. Folks, definitely check that out. Walter, thank you so much for coming on the show. I've enjoyed listening to you on Radio Mysterioso for, oh, many, many months now. And uh, it's been great to have you on Banal of America Audio finally here so we could explore not just Latitude 33 but all these other side tangents that we've gone down the last half hour. So I look forward to talking to you in the future. And once again, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me on, Tim. That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 5. Big, big thanks to Walter Bosley for coming on the show and enlightening us to all that amazing information. You can pick up Walter's book, Latitude 33, Key to the Kingdom, at thekevinsmithshow.com. Pretty easy to find, thekevinsmithshow.com. Check it out and stay tuned for more cool books coming from Walter Bosley as he explores this energy line phenomenon. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio listener feedback. Two emails this week, so let's just dive right into the mailbag. The first one is in response to last week's outstanding email from Keith, and it comes from Joshua, no hometown listed. Here's what he has to say. I know that you are trying to get away from the awesome word, as I too use it constantly, so I will say that your show is really groovy. As for the traffic signs and Keith's explanation, I only have one question. What's with the color codes? Why not just put a date on the sign to begin with? They bring conspiracy to themselves when they have to act all cryptic. A simple date is the easiest way to determine when a sign was made. And who is going to sue a state because a sign is 10 years old? We have signs in PA that have been here since I was a baby, and I am 36. The explanation makes sense, but what's the point? and you would not need to have a code breaker to figure out the secret production date. Seems like that would be making a complex issue about putting a simple date on the sign. I'm glad they don't do that with the expiration dates on milk. Now for the one who is channeling God, there is a medication for that, I'm sure. 
Keep up the great work, brother. Be all and end all equals been all. Signed, Joshua. Thank you for writing in, Joshua. I will say that we got a ton of response to Keith's email from last week's episode. A lot of people really appreciated and enjoyed the insight that Keith shared with us. I do agree with you in the sense that, you know, using these codes and stuff only invites people to look further into it and start making up their own interpretations of the codes, like the guy who was channeling God. So it does sort of invite its own problems. But I guess maybe that was from an earlier time, as he said, now they've switched to a dating system. So maybe it was in a more quaint time in America's history when they used the coding system. And now, as a result of all these conspiracy buffs and stuff, they have decided to change over to dates and stuff. But I have given the heads up to Keith regarding your email, and hopefully we'll hear back from him with regards to why they used a code in the first place. I really do love the line here at the end, be all and end all equals been all. I'm going to start using that, I think, as my signature in various places. So thank you for that, Joshua, as well. And thanks for writing in. I'm glad you uh, checked out the end of the show and listened to Keith's email, and it gave you some food for thought about the street sign conspiracy. The next email is a bit of a funny one, to me at least, and hopefully gives you a look at the kind of emails that I receive here at BOAHQ. It's short and sweet, and it's wildly confusing. So here's what it says. It comes from Wind Chimes. That's all they say, Wind Chimes. And here's what Wind Chimes has to say. Hi, can I subscribe via email? Thanks. That's it. That's all Wind Chimes wants to know, and I have no idea what he or she is talking about. So, of course, I email Wind Chimes back to find out what they're looking to subscribe to. The podcast, I don't know how that would even work. The website, we don't really do email updates or anything like that for the website. So, I wrote back Wind Chimes, asked, you know, what are you trying to subscribe to? And Wind Chimes never even writes me back. So, I'm left forever wondering what Wind Chimes wished to subscribe to. Wind Chimes, if you're out there, write me back. Let me know what you're trying to subscribe to. I get emails like this from time to time, confusing ones that I have no idea what people are talking about. And it haunts me, folks. It haunts me. So if I write you back after you've written me a question like this, please respond. Otherwise, I have no idea for the rest of my life what Wind Chimes is talking about. Those are the two emails for this week. We kept them short and sweet because I'm really... uh, double booked as far as work goes here this week and I wanted to make sure we get the episode out to you as soon as possible. We've got a couple of really fun emails from some old friends coming at you next week on the holiday special so make sure you stay tuned to the end of the program to hear from two old friends of BOA Audio in the listener feedback portion of the show. It's going to be fun but for now thanks to Joshua and Wind Chimes for writing in. And for all those folks out there who do want to write in and be a part of the always exciting BOA Audio listener feedback, there's three general ways to do it. You can write to boaaudio at hotmail.com. That's pretty easy. Or you just go to banalofamerica.com and click the contact button on the left-hand side of the screen in the menu. You'll see it. It's pretty easy to find. That'll bring you to the contact page. That has all the information there on how to get in touch with me. And the final way is... The official BOA forum, the US of E.com, T H E U S O F E.com. Always some fun conversations going on there. Lately, we've been talking about Fringe and the 2009 2010 baseball offseason. Lots of big moves going on for my beloved Red Sox. And our resident Yankee fan, Mystery Man, is 
wringing his hands in rage as the Red Sox make these big moves. Lots of fun happening in the uh, thread to discuss the offseason in baseball. Plus lots of other stuff, UFO discussion going on there, conspiracy talk as well, and always threads on each of the different BOA Audio episodes. So you can join up, chime in, post your thoughts on the latest edition of BOA Audio, and I'll see it there and respond to you in the thread and get a little dialogue going about the latest BOA Audio. So those are the three methods, email, contact button, and the usofe.com. Any of those means to contact me will put your correspondence into my hands for a future edition of BOA Audio listener feedback. Up next, of course, it is the thanks portion of the program. Let me roll through the list of the outstanding and esteemed BOA staff. Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, A.M. Murphy, Marla Pena, and our webmaster Jeremy Boston and contributing cartoonist Andy Carolin. They're posting some amazing stuff app in all of America. You definitely want to go over to the website and check it out. Richard Thomas talks about the 1960s cutting-edge film studio from Britain, Hammer Films, and one of their later movies, The Devil Rides Out, which deals with secret societies, satanic worship, all kinds of occult stuff going on in that film, and Richard really examines it in his latest Richard's Room 101. Tina Senna's latest piece posted yesterday at BOA 2012 and How I Learned to Love Thy Neighbor. Always fun stuff from Tina Senna. You definitely want to check that one out at BOA. Her column is Esotericana. Andy Carolin just posted his latest edition of Disclosure, his webcomic, under the title of Atmospheric Vortex. Always hilarious, Andy Carolin's Disclosure. If you're not checking that one out, you're missing out on some Really fun entertainment at BOA and Andy Carolin's website, andycarolin.co.uk. Check that one out, my friends. And finally, Leslie's Gray Matters just posted at BOA today under the title of The Blue Spiral. Leslie weighs in on the infamous Norway Spiral. What was it all about? What was really going on there? Leslie offers her opinions on the blue spiral that has everybody in Esoterica talking this week. So those are at BOA right now. We've got more stuff in the pipeline for you at the website coming up in the next week or so. Then, the staff doesn't know this yet, but I'm giving them a couple weeks off, and they'll be coming back in January with all new columns. want to let them have some downtime here to recharge their batteries and enjoy the holiday and ruminate on some new stuff for Banal of America. So they'll be back in January. Of course, there's going to be a few more columns posted next week, and I'll tell you more about those at the end of next week's episode, but then they're going to have some downtime until the beginning of January when they'll have all new columns and a whole bunch of new stuff for Banal of America. Don't worry, there's going to be plenty of stuff cooking at BOA over the next two or three weeks. I'll tell you a little bit more about that, I'm sure, coming up. So until then, let's just go with our usual closeout of this segment. If you're only listening to BOA Audio and you're not reading the columns at Benal of America, you're only getting half the story. BOA, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. And if you're a newcomer to BOA and you want to know the URL for the website, that's pretty simple. BenalofAmerica.com, all one word, B-I-N-N-A-L-L, ofamerica.com. Check it out. As we noted last week, we're right in the thick of the holiday season, and that is usually the time of year when I like to turn to the BOA Audio listeners and ask them to help us out 
help us pay some bills here at VOA via a donation through PayPal. How do you do that? That's simple. You go to Banal of America, you click the PayPal button, they'll walk you through the process. No donation is too small, and all donations go towards Banal of America and BOA Audio, helping to keep the website and the audio series up and running, freely available, and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. Next week on the program, it's no secret who the guest is. It's the holiday tradition like no other, as we welcome the father of modern-day ufology, Stanton Friedman. In the first half of the program, we're going to get an update on what he's been up to in the last year, including a teaser for his next book, Science is Wrong. We're also going to get his thoughts on the passing of ufological legend Dick Hall, and he's going to share some of his stories from his many interactions with the legendary Dick Hall. From there, we're going to also discuss what Stanton sees as his own legacy in the world of UFO studies, as well as a discussion on the exopolitical movement and the disclosure meme that has been growing over the past year or so. Now, that's just the first half of the conversation, because we're going to continue a tradition we started last year for the second half of the show. Many people here who have been listening to the end of the program know what I'm talking about. We're going to be using questions sent in from BOA Audio listeners who queried Stanton on a number of topics, running the gamut of esoteric regions including 9-11, UFOs as self-replicating probes, the JFK assassination, the Nazi Bell experiments, what's the oddest thing he's encountered on an investigation, the Norway spiral, UFO cases he sees as particularly strong, the nuclear plane program he used to work on, and his thoughts on the interdimensional theories on UFOs, as well as a few other interesting questions posed to the star of our annual holiday special. So lots of cool stuff there next week. It is BOA Audio celebrating the holidays as only we can. The fifth annual BOA Audio holiday special featuring Stanton Friedman. You don't need me to push it any more than that. You know what it's all about, and I'm sure you're going to want to come back for that one next week at BOA. I'm going to try and get it out to you as soon as possible. I'd really like to post it Tuesday of next week because I know folks are going to be traveling and doing stuff for the holidays and we don't want to unload it to you on the 23rd or 24th. That's way too late. So we're going to try and get it to you on the 22nd is really our goal date for that, Tuesday the 22nd. Next week, Stanton Friedman, the 5th Annual BOA Audio Holiday Special. And on that note, we close the book on another edition of BOA Audio. Thanks again, once again, to Walter Bosley for coming on the show. Thanks to Joshua and Windchimes for writing in to BOA Audio listener feedback. And most of all, of course, thanks to all you great folks out there listening to the program. You are the fuel that drives the VOA machine. Thank you for making VOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.